You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. I have some Bible verses to read, as a pastor is supposed to, and then I'm going to preach a sermon. So here we go. Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy as at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. And here's what that looks like. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them has light dawned. Not just the shadow of death, but those who are also in the vicinity of the shadow of death get the light of Christ as well. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, everybody say immediately. They left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. We are now in the season of Epiphany. And Epiphany is the sudden burst of realization that something has always been where you never knew it was. The sudden burst of realizing that something amazing has always been where you never thought it was. We sometimes witness like the gospel has a starting point in somebody's life. The good news is that the gospel has been for somebody before they ever knew that there was even a thing called the gospel. We walk around as instruments of epiphany, proclaiming to people that something amazing has always been true of you, even when you didn't know it was. And it's not just for people who aren't walking with the Lord. I think maybe even more so as Christians, we need to know this on a regular basis because when you're truly walking in the spirit, listen to me carefully, you're also walking in a deeper awareness of your own flaw. When you're not walking in the spirit, you could begin to kid yourself into thinking that you don't have flaw. Have you ever met someone who lives and walks and talks and carries themselves or herself like they don't have flaw? (laughs) 
Jesus will make sure that you never walk like that. And if you do, he will make it known to you and those around you that you're not all that. You're not a bag of chips. You're not even pistachios. You're like those organic mints that Doreen gave me when I got sick and almost killed me. (laughs) They made me better in two seconds, but I thought I was going to die. Anyway. How do you all put up with this? Like, I... Our two points of emphasis for this year, one, and we talked about this two weeks ago, was remembering the poor. Programs. Prison ministry, which we are already barreling towards, and we're about to call our first meeting because people have been filling up Jacqueline's inbox with ideas for prison ministry. Can you all please write down right now to remember to continue to pray that this actually comes to fruition? I just want to see everybody's head look down and either write or type whatever it is that you're doing. Okay. The other emphasis for the year that we're going to talk about today is the restoration of the family. Uh, Isaiah would call it repairing the ancient ruins. And we've talked about this. At the end of the Old Testament, it says that Elijah will come. This is so important right now, that Elijah will come and he will restore the hearts of children to their parents and the hearts of parents to their children. Parents, don't think that your children's hearts are the only ones that need to be restored. Children, I think we only have teenagers in the room. Your heart needs to be restored too. It stinks. I don't even know you, but I could tell you it's probably terrible. So, because I used to be one. Remember, Dad? Elijah's going to come and do this. Later on, Jesus would say of John the Baptist that John is Elijah. So the question is, if John the Baptist, theologically speaking, if John the Baptist is Elijah, and Elijah's role is to restore the family, and John the Baptist is Elijah, then the question is, what does John the Baptist say that would lead us and show us how the family is to be restored? And what does John the Baptist say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the tool that the prophet uses to begin the process of restoring the family? Repent. Not, here's a good way to witness to your kids. Not, kids, here's a good way to witness to your parents. He looks at each individual and says, this family will be restored when you repent. But it's not me. When you repent. But you don't know what they're doing. Yep. When you repent. Adam. But the woman you gave me. But the serpent. Oop. When you repent, the only path to the restoration of your family is your repentance. Not the repentance of the person you think needs to repent the most, because they should be hearing me equally and apart from you right now. The only path to true reconciliation is your repentance. Look at the person next to you and point at them and say, your repentance. Don't do that. It defeats the whole purpose of what I just said. (laughs) 
Now, listen, John the Baptist is the one, that just made me laugh so much. John the Baptist is the one who's saying, in the spirit of Elijah, repent. And look at the first line of the gospel. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, I am telling you right now, don't need a long time to be in the ministry to know this. The spirit that is telling you that you need to repent will always get arrested by the powers and principalities that reside in you. The minute the call to repent goes out, it will always get apprehended. It will always get relegated to a little part of your brain where you either say, I've already done that, or it's for somebody else. John gets arrested. Jesus does not begin his ministry until the spirit of repentance gets arrested. Because Jesus needs to call to repentance the spirit that binds the call to repentance. If there's nothing you could think of in your life that you need to repent of, then the spirit that helped you get to that conclusion, you need to repent of it. Jesus waits, and look what it says that Jesus says here. From that time, now, we live in a culture where the pastor always has to be original. Give me, give me something new, every single, like no leftovers. And, and even in the workplace and even in our parenting and friendships, we're always trying, and don't even social media in a disgusting, sinful way, we're always trying to be the most unique, the most new, the most innovative. And Jesus is innovation personified. Jesus is original Oh, he, he is the OG. He's the original God. Like, he is the one that started it all. And watch what Jesus, his first lines in ministry, the one who created fish, the, his first lines in ministry are, to quote his predecessor, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus doesn't say anything new. He has all the new things to say. He takes up what the spirit of Elijah has been saying through John. So number one, sidebar, for free. Just take this. Don't exhaust yourself trying to be new. Free yourself and just be faithful. If Jesus didn't feel the compulsion to say something new, God help us if we feel like we're supposed to. He knew that him saying that would be recorded for thousands of years. God is finally here. What are his first words? He quotes somebody. <laughs> he might quote you. Hopefully we're using our mouths well. He frees John by taking up his ministry, thus proving that when Jesus takes up a ministry, even the most bound person's ministry can still bear fruit. The family gets restored when the spirit of repentance falls upon each individual in the family. That spirit of repentance gets arrested all of the time. It was arrested instantaneously in Adam and Eve. The woman you gave me made me do it. The serpent made me do it. Right away, the spirit of repentance was arrested in their hearts immediately. Jesus always comes, and the first thing he frees, we love to quote it, he who the sun sets free is... And you want to know what makes you the most free? When you're free to always repent. 
because there is nothing that you will have to do more than repent. And when you're free to do it, when you're free in the middle of an argument where your ego is so swollen and you can have that moment where you're like, you know what, I'm having trouble figuring out where I might have gone wrong here, but here's what I know about myself. I'm disgusting, so I'm sure I've done something wrong. Let me just take a minute, back up, I'm sorry. That, when you're at the moment where you think to do it, feels like the worst thing you could ever do. I'd rather die than say I'm sorry right now. But when you finally punch that thing in its head and you say I'm sorry when your ego doesn't want to, you've just won a better breakthrough than if you won Publishers Clearinghouse three times. You have no idea. There's nothing more freeing than knowing you can repent because to be able to repent freely means you know that God is smiling on you and you're already forgiven. It says in Isaiah that Zebulun and Naphtali were held in contempt. They were sinful nations. And it says, but in the latter time, he has made glorious those two places. This is how Jesus, this is how God judges sin. He makes his light shine on it. And he redeems it. And listen to what it says. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. If you don't remember anything, remember this. This is the most exciting point of the day. It's downhill after this, I promise. This is the pinnacle. And it's not, now that I said that, it's going to be terrible, but besides the point. Jesus calls people to repent. How many have thought in your life, I'm going to raise my hand first, that somebody around you needed to repent? How many thought I probably needed to repent? Can we start there? Everybody's hands up. Put your hands up. Jesus calls them to repent. But listen, it says in Isaiah, Zebulun and Naphtali need to repent. And that the way they're going to be able to repent is when the love of God and the light of God shines on them. Not the anger and judgment and ridicule. The love, the light of God shines on them. Okay? Watch what it says about Jesus. It says he went and lived there. He left Nazareth and moved in to the cities that needed to repent. In the NRSV, it says he went and made his home there. I I don't have the skill set to emphasize what is like bursting out of my heart right now. Jesus doesn't call you to repent until he's willing to live with you first. He doesn't shout your sin from a distance. He first moves in, loves the heck out of you, is intimate with you, and then when he already knows that you love him and that he accepts you, then he calls you to repent. The church has stood in here and yelled out there, y'all need to come in here and repent. Jesus is the only one saying, no, we have to go move in out there. We need to make our home. You don't have the right to tell somebody to repent until you're willing to fully make your home in the residence of that person's sin, and then you can call them to repentance. He moved in. What did he do with the women caught in the act of adultery? She, she's down there. Her eyes are closed. They're going to throw rocks at her. He, I love this. He says, he who's without sin cast the first stone. And it says this. It says, starting with the oldest to the youngest. 
they dropped their stones and walked away. I love that because the more life you've lived, the more convicting what Jesus just said is. So the oldest people were like, I'm I'm just not. I hurt my back trying to pick up a rock in the first place. I'm definitely not going to be able to throw it. I might as well just leave. And then he looks at her and says, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. He moved in. And then he says, go and sin no more. I took away your condemnation. I haven't even brought up what you did. I sent everyone who rightfully was going to stone you away. By the way, come to this mountain on Good Friday. You'll see that I got stoned for you. And then he just says, go and sin no more. Doesn't even say what it is. But the go and sin no more doesn't ever leave. It's not a free pass. But the go and sin no more happens after the love and connection and the moving in. Jesus looked at her and said, your life is worthy of me now. And now that I'm in it, now we can talk about your sin. It's not once you deal with that sin, I could move in. It's unless I move in, you can't deal with that sin. That's heavy. How does this look? The light of Christ is shown into the world when he shows up and calls us to repent. Here's the reality. Let me just tell you that we got all these definitions of repentance. Repentance is changing your mind. It's turning around. Sin is missing the mark. Repentance is turning around. But here's the reality. Here's the reality. Repentance is all, in our lifetime, all repentance will ever be is resistance. You will never be fully repented. Does anybody think they will? Oh, my God. (sighs) Job security. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'll always have a job, if not for one person. You will never be fully repented. So what is repentance? It's resisting. It is consistently and faithfully resisting the powers and principalities otherwise known as the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is a constant getting back up again, right? Uh, A righteous man falls seven times, but he rises seven times. A righteous man isn't someone who never falls. A righteous man is someone who always gets up. Which means that God knows that the narrative of our life will always be falling. Our righteousness is not in how little we fall. It's how we always fight to resist the temptation to stay down. Are you hearing me this morning? Your success is not in never sinning. It's getting back up again. So the voice of condemnation that says you never should have sinned, that's not God's voice. The voice that says do not be afraid, rise and go and sin no more, that's the voice of God. That is the voice of God. Repentance is resisting the powers and principalities that wreak havoc in our life. 
Yes, it's changing our mind, but we'll always be changing our mind. Yes, it's turning around, but we'll always be turning around. Our life will be marked by resistance, not success. Success is defined for us as getting up again. It's not defined by never falling. I can't emphasize that enough. Falling, the enemy is right there when you hit the ground and say, see, you can't be righteous. And Jesus is there saying, I fell lower than you fell. That means you can get up again and again and again and again and again and again. That's why we can be free to repent in front of people whose our ego doesn't want to repent in front of. Because the way we shine light in the world is not by living right first. It's by getting up from living wrong. That's when people see the church at its best. When Jesus comes back and restores all of this, they'll see it from the other end. They'll see us not falling. Because we'll be him. But Jesus fell. With the weight of the, our sin on his shoulders, he fell. And he got up because that's where we need our power now in the getting back up. When he calls us to repent, he shines his light into the world. When we repent, we shine his light into the world. When we repent is when we shine the most light. What will turn heads more than self-righteous living or even good living is when people who live well still repent all the time because we don't live by sight. Even when I get it right, I know that something in me is still warring against the spirit of Christ. And when people see me repent from something immeasurable, that's when they say, wait a minute, but you're doing well. Why, why, why are you still repenting? That is disarming because when you're talking about you, you can say a whole bunch of stuff about somebody else when you're saying it about you. It is always us talking about other people all the time. That sh- P- Peter took the sword, which is analogous to the word of God, and he cut somebody's ear off. And Jesus is like, hold on a minute. Everybody stop. Peter, you can't use the Bible. You can't use the church. You can't use morality to cut people's ears off because faith doesn't come by seeing. It comes by hearing. And self-righteousness slashes people's ability to hear off their face. And I think in my life alone, Jesus has had to heal way too many ears, and that is where I'm repenting. He hired like an ear healer, like as a part-time assistant in heaven just because of me. Somebody right now is like, this is my job. I, I hear all of Pastor Bill's ears that he keeps cutting off. I wish he would just stop so I can. Yeah. This is true, Dan. I love you, Dan. So now this story ends in a boat with a father and two sons. And this man walks by a boat. Now, parents, people who want, who believe that there's people in your personal family that need to be restored, this is a prophetic moment. I want you to hear this. Zebedee is sitting there with his two sons. And what are his two sons doing? His two sons are doing exactly what he always envisioned them to do. They're taking over their father's business. This is how blessing is defined throughout the Old Testament and in that culture. These boys 
are good boys. They're doing what their father did, and they're in the boat with their father, which means that there's this season happening in the life of this father where he's actually getting to disciple his boys in his work with them, and then one day he's going to be able to leave that boat, and they're going to stay in that boat and hopefully raise up their boys, and then they're going to teach them, and this perpetual genealogical blessing of God is going to continue. And then Jesus shows up. And he says, you two boys, come follow me. And it says they left their boat and their father and followed him. Isaiah said, we're going to repair the ancient ruins. These things go together. When something old is destroyed and it's going to be remade, it will never be remade the way it was. It'll never be remade the way it was. There will be something different about it, different materials, everything. There's even a story in the Bible where when the temple was rebuilt, the people who saw the old one wept because the new one wasn't the way the old one was. There are people in this church who remember this church 35 years ago, and there's actual and legitimate and warranted pain in your heart because church is different now. And there's people where you're new right now and you're feeling what's going on here. And hopefully in 30 years, church is a little bit different. And you'll look back and say, I have such fond memories of the past. It's always hard for us to get with something new because we want something new really to be a better version of what we once loved. Zebedee knew if my boys take over my business, that's what blessing is. And then Jesus comes and pulls them out of the boat, and it says they left their father. And what does that mean for parents? And what does that mean for people who know that there were, we have family members, cousins, uncles, aunts, that that God wants to bring in? Here's what it means. It means that unless we let go of what we think is the best case scenario for them, we'll never see them walk with Jesus. Zebedee had to deny what he was always told was blessing in order to see his boys walk with something better. You have no idea how deep that drill digs. It's in every one of us, even from a Christian standpoint, says, I know what it would look like if my kids were serving the Lord again. I know exactly what God has given me a vision of, dot, dot, dot. Unless you're willing to part with that, you might keep them in a boat not knowing that you're robbing them of walking with Christ. Anybody who saw those boys leave that boat would have told Zebedee, you are a failure on every Jewish level. You're a failure. You think Zebedee thinks he's a failure now? Nope. Great parenting. What was the best parenting move he ever made? Letting go of his boys. Letting them walk away from the thing he worked hard for them to have his whole life. It was prophesied over him. When your boys take over your business, you're walking rightly with the Lord. And he had to discern from that boat that that man who called his kids away from the plan and purpose that he felt God had for them. 
He had to discern in that moment, you two go. I, I, you, you should go. We know what is best for our kids. No, we don't. We just have to know when that man shows up on the seashore. And we can't pretend to know what the ancient ruin is supposed to look like when it's restored. And we can't pretend to know in a new time and in a new age what blessing really means for our kids and our families in this time and in this era. We can't take something that we've developed in our own mind, if we really want to believe that eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart or imagination of man what God has in store for them, then we better not sacrifice our children on the altar of what we can imagine for them. If we're supposed to be living in what we could never have imagined, then we better not hold them captive like Pharaoh and a taskmaster to only what we can imagine for them. We have to repent of control. We have to repent of discernment. We have to be ready for their calling to look different than we thought it would be. We have to pave the way by repenting ourselves. So here's a quick, here's two stories that I heard in the last week about children whose parents told me, don't tell this story because I don't want anyone in the church to think we're good parents. So I'm going to tell it because that's a great reason to tell me not to tell it, and that makes me feel very safe telling it. First is, a few weeks ago, I invited the parents and their kids to come up, and I stood right here, and I said, I saw Joey Dongo start walking toward me, and I said, Joey's going to come up here and pray the chandeliers off the wall. And obviously, I was just kidding, but he, for a split second, was like, oh, shoot, I'm going to get to pray? Like, he was ready to come up. And afterwards, he said to me, he's like, he's like, pastor, pastor. He's like, you know, chandeliers are like fire. And if I prayed them off the wall and they landed on the ground and the fire broke out, God would have spoken to everybody. I'm like, yeah, I got a sermon. Can you just say that again? Just one more. How many know what he described, whether he knows it or not, and I'm assuming he might now that I realize he's such an overachiever, but besides that, like, that is the story of Gideon, is it not? There's fire in them jars. When, the, when I say, smash those jars on the ground and the fire will come out, we'll defeat the enemy. He's in that mystical, prophetic. And then I heard another story. I was at the parking frog. <laughs> Celebrating one of our new deacon's birthdays. <laughs> and, and Kerry comes up to me and says, can I tell you a story about Levi? Or as I like to call him, Levy. <laughs> and she says, don't think, like, uh, this, this is beyond what we deserve. I'm like, okay. And I'm probably going to butcher it, but I'll tell it my way, it's fine. I'm scared of Kerry a little bit, so <laughs> I'm going to tell it over on this side of the stairs. And she she goes into his room at night, and Levi says, how do, how do I know when I'm hearing from God? It's every parent's worst nightmare, right? How do I know it's God and not me? I don't know. When you figure it out, can you tell me? <laughs> like, so she starts telling him all these you hear God through when you read the Bible and when you listen to Christian music and when you listen to your mom and dad and when you listen to your pastor and when you listen to your teachers and all those things, they're all very true. And then she said, but sometimes you get this warm feeling in your body. 
And that's when you know you're hearing from God. And Levi said, I feel that all the time. And Carrie said, when do you feel it? And he said, when I'm reading my Bible. And the funny thing is, both parents said, don't tell that story. Because we're not good enough to have that happen. And here's what I'm saying to them and to everybody. On the one hand, we never want to think that our good decisions are the thing that writes our children. But on the other hand, we would never want our sin to make us think that our children can't be righted. Jesus speaks to children, regardless of how good parents are. Praise the Lord. Sophia has a chance. Here's what I know about those parents. They don't get it right. They all repent like crazy. That's what getting it right is. Before Jesus comes back, getting it right is saying sorry. Getting it right is admitting you're getting it wrong. Getting it right is saying I got to get back up again. If that's how we're living, there's a real chance our family could be restored. If all we are are parents and friends and cousins and brothers and sons and daughters who stand outside and look at people in our family who need to be restored and say all the things they're doing wrong and how much better their life could be if they come here, that's not going to help anybody. But when we move in and we open with what we're getting wrong and we talk about where we fail, and we talk about where we need to get back up again. I'm not here saying it will work, but here's what it'll do. It'll be disarming. It'll give that person more of a chance to be open to the move of the Spirit than morality condemnation will. And if we're not willing to be in somebody's life because we don't like the way they're living, then maybe that's where we need to start with repenting. The life of Jesus expressed in the communion meal that we're about to come to is a life of generosity. He gave thanks. He gave them bread. He gave them wine. He said, this is not just bread given to you. This is me given to you. He gave, he gave, he gave. That's all you hear in the whole story of his passion. The worst of the worst happening to somebody. It's all about what he gave. He said, he gave. He's giving words, he's giving prayers, he's giving life, he's giving bread, he's giving wine, he's giving thanks. All he's doing is giving. Some people say that Jesus gave so much that Jesus is what God's poverty looks like. Because Jesus is God having given everything and having nothing left. So I stand here now in the face of a culture that refuses to assume the church should ever ask for money. And this is not a hard right-hand turn. We're not making a big deal about it. But if, this, if you're here and you haven't been here for a while, this is going to feel rough, what I'm about to say. But every, for the past 25 years, on the last Sunday of January, we bring a first fruit offering to the Lord. And the question is, and I, I feel uncomfortable in my spirit right now because I would have loved to just landed the plane right there, right where we were. But here's the reality. And please hear me. Jesus could have said, you can't serve God and sex. You can't serve God and success. 
You can't serve God and education. You can't serve God and Netflix. You can't serve God and what neighborhood you live in. He breaks it all the way down to you can't serve God and money because all the other things I listed are tied up in that somehow. And so if we really want to live these lives where we give repentance, where we give confession when we make a mistake, when we give forgiveness when somebody else does, we have to be innately generous people. And here's the funny thing. If I said to you right now, give the Lord a sacrifice of praise, nobody who's been here for 30 years or one minute would be like, the church always asks us to give praise. I knew it. I'm out. Let's go. Everybody go. Let's, let's usher down our line here because we sat in the middle by accident, even though we wanted to leave. Let's get out of here. Let's go home. Everybody get your coats. Get your coats. Get your coats. Come on, pack it up. Hey, you forgot your iPod. You forgot anything. I said iPod. What am I, 100? <laughs> but when somebody says it's time to give money, that gets everyone all crinkled up. And that is the reason why we need to sometimes. Because we could ask you to give praise and it's no problem. We can ask you to give thanksgiving and it's no problem. We can ask you to give each other a hug and that's no problem. Money, and it is a problem. But the reality is, if we can't part with our treasure, we can't give mercy. You think you can, but if you can't part with treasure, you can't part with your ego. You can't part with the grudge that you're holding on to. You can't part with the leverage that you have over somebody's life. You can't part with the feel-good notion that I did something right and they did something wrong, and as long as I never bring it up, they'll always know that I bested them in that one area, and I'll just kind of have that thing. I don't think that giving money is a transaction, and I don't think it's an investment. I think it's an offering. And I think everybody in this room should just simply say, Lord, is that me today? I stand as a minister of the gospel who knows that Jesus cannot be our Lord if we serve anything other than him. And I stand as a pastor of Salem who knows that the money that comes into this house is used in accordance with the way that I'm teaching right now. We had a good financial year, but we didn't end the year with $100,000 of extra money from 2019. We ended with $3,000 in 2019 because we're a non-profit organization that should be using its money in accordance with its vision on a regular basis. And that's what we're doing here. That is what we're doing here. Let's stand to our feet this morning. I'm not saying that money is the thing that restores our family, but I'm saying we have to let go of the thing that clogs our heart the most. And according to Jesus, that's what it is. So here's the reality. We're going to come to the Lord's table right now. Uh, if you're going to be administering communion, you can come to the front right now. Uh, some of you may have done this already in tithes and offerings. If you haven't and, and you feel the Holy Spirit just tugging on you in this particular moment, you could bring whatever it is that you feel released to bring and just drop it on the altar after you come to the table. But here's what I'm praying for. I'm praying that this release, this awkward release of money would be the thing that would teach us to be patient, would be the thing that would unclog our heart and teach us to be generous. It would be the thing that would teach us to not hold a grudge. It would be 
our way of relocating our heart and getting the compass to point north again. And this is, this is what Jesus said. You're either going to serve me or you're going to serve money. Let's show him that we're serving him. And then let's leave here as generous as he was and say to the world around us, the people that we can't stand the most, this is my life given for you. That should be the sentence of the church to the world. This is our life given for you. Heavenly Father. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.